the Lord. Amen. How many of you have a Bible tonight? Would you raise it up in the air just a minute? Aren't you glad for the Word of God? God has exalted His Word above His name, the Bible says. It is forever settled in heaven. And I have to tell you, every time I come to this moment, I'm not talking about this conference, this moment where we open the Word of God, I stand in awe to think that the Creator God of the universe would speak to peons like us. Would you look at your neighbor just a minute? Look at the person next to you. See the person you're sitting next to tonight? You are sitting next to a certified pipsqueak. That's what you're sitting next to tonight. Oh, but it's even better than that. Look, at, look here, look here, look here. Do you know who you're listening to tonight? You're just listening to another pipsqueak. That's all you're listening to. Because the reality is, none of us are anything. The Lord is everything. And you don't need to hear me speak tonight. No, no, you don't need to hear me speak tonight. We all, we all need to hear God speak. Would you like to hear God speak tonight? Then let's open his word together. Would you take your Bible and turn with me, please, in the Old Testament to the book of 2 Samuel. Now, you know the books of 1 and 2 Samuel record for us the story of the great king of Israel, David, and his military exploits. And when you come to 2 Samuel chapter 5, you come to another one of the battle scenes of the Bible. I, I'm glad to report to you before I read it to you that this is not just a battle scene, this is a victory scene. Sadly, there are far too many people who've been engaged in spiritual warfare and instead of coming out like the Lord intended more than a conqueror through him that loved them, they have succumbed to the enemy. They have fought for a little while and then they've said, you know, I don't think I can fight this anymore and they've given up on it. David was a man who fought from beginning to end. He had the warrior heart. May I say to you before we read the text tonight, that the real battle for your mind, the real battle for your heart, the real battle for your future is not fought in this room. It will be fought when you go home. Now, it was on a Thursday night in a youth meeting that God called me to preach. I think about that every Thursday night that I stand, especially to preach to a group of young people. When I finish preaching in a few minutes, I intend to ask you to make decisions. There are some of you still not saved. You're still not saved. And today is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. There's some of you like me that have very definite decisions you need to make for Christ yet tonight. With all the wonderful things that have happened this week, there's still something you need to say yes to the Lord about. But I want you to know, I'm not just preaching for a few people tonight. I'm preaching to everyone. And when I finish, I'm going to ask everyone to respond. And I'm not only preaching for this hour, I'm preaching for next week. No, no, I'm preaching for next month. I'm preaching tonight for six weeks from now. I'm, I'm preaching tonight for a year from now. Because truthfully, I'm really tired of going to youth meetings where people think as long as we had a good meeting and people came forward to the altar, then we check that box and it's all done. No, no, this is not the end. This is the beginning. 
But it's interesting to me that 2 Samuel 5 records the story of yet another one of David's bouts with the enemy. Uh, look, you see him in 1 Samuel holding up the head of Goliath and somebody said, all right, he got that out of the way, got it out of the way. That just set in motion a lifetime of spiritual battles. And if you think the decision you made this week is going to just send you home without the devil on your case and it's going to be smooth sailing from here, you're going to be a very disillusioned human being. You must learn what it means to be a good soldier of Jesus Christ every day. And so we come to 2 Samuel 5. In verse number 4, the Bible says, David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned 30 and three years over all Israel and Judah. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem. Pause, lift your head, look at me just a moment. David, finally, has been anointed king not over a portion of Israel, but now over the entire nation of Israel. It's a, it's a high, holy moment. It's glorious. And now David, who has run for his life from Saul, now David, who's hidden in caves for his life, now David, who's wondered when the promise would be fulfilled, now David, who has bided his time waiting on the spiritual breakthrough, now David and his men are on the way to Jerusalem. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? You'd imagine that when they got there, everybody there would be glad to see them coming. <laughs> but they weren't. Some of you have the idea you're going to get in your vans and buses and cars and go back home and everybody there is just going to be thrilled to death about all the spiritual decisions you made this week. But the reality is there's still a devil that hates you. There's a world that doesn't understand you. And here's the real dirty secret. The biggest enemy you have is you. When David arrives at Jerusalem... There's a group of people who are living in Jerusalem that are not supposed to be there. They're identified here in verse number 6, where it says, And the king and his men went to Jerusalem unto the... What's that word, please? Say it with me. It's the what? Jebusites. Mark it in your Bible. Just take your pen out and mark their name. It's very important, and I'll show you why in just a moment. See, nothing is accidental or incidental or coincidental in the Bible. God's teaching us something here. He gets to Jerusalem, that glorious city where the throne is, that wonderful place where the temple will be. He gets to the place where God has for him, and when he gets there, immediately the enemy smacks him in the face. You see, everything God ordains, Satan opposes. And every time God is working, Satan is fighting. Do you understand? There's spiritual warfare going on in this room at this moment. And that's not going to lessen when this meeting is over. It's really going to intensify and get heated up. He gets to Jerusalem under the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, which spake unto David, saying, Except thou take away the blind and the lame, thou shalt not come in hither. Thinking, David cannot come in hither. What are they doing? They're taunting him. They literally said to him, Our deaf people and our lame people will hold you off. That's exactly what they said. They said, Unless you can take care of the deaf and the lame, big boy, this city is not yours. 
Everybody else may call you king. Oh, don't forget, don't forget, David in Scripture is a picture of the son of David that was to come, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is not just the rightful king of Jerusalem and the rightful king of Israel. He is the king of eternity. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And here comes David to the throne room, but instead of meeting a glorious reception, he meets opposition. I think our deaf people and our, our lame people, they'll, they'll take care of you and your armies. Thinking David cannot come in here. They're pretty arrogant. I'll show you why in just a moment. But man, I like verse number seven. Oh, thank you, Holy Ghost, for verse seven. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion. The same is the city of David. And David said on that day, Whosoever getteth up to the gutter and smiteth the Jebusites and the lame and the blind that are hated of David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. Wherefore they said, The blind and the lame shall not come into the house. So David dwelt in the fort and called it the city of David. And David built round about from Milo and inward. And don't you love verse 10? We all want to get to verse number 10. And David went on and grew great. And the Lord God of hosts was with him. I've been meditating on these verses the last few days. It is the first act of David after he is anointed king over all of Israel. It is, look please, the first order business. Now I say to you, all of you that have said you wanted the Lord to be the rightful king over you, all of you that have said you wanted to tear down the strongholds, all of you that have said you wanted the Lord to have all of you, might I say to you that your first order of business is the exact same as David's. You're going to have to conquer the enemy within. It is not the enemy without. It's the enemy within. We love to sit in buildings like this and fuss about how bad the world is. But I'm going to tell you who I have the most trouble with, me. And you can sit there and blame your friends if you want to for not serving Jesus. But in the end, you're not going to stand before your friends or with your friends someday. You're going to stand face to face with the creator God of the universe. You're going to kneel at the nail-pierced feet of Jesus Christ. And you're going to give an account of your own life. They are not the greatest enemy you have. You are your own greatest enemy. Then we get real spiritual sounding. We say, yeah, the devil, you know, the devil. The devil gets blamed for lots of things. But I just want to remind you that your Christ is greater than your devil. The reality is we've made excuses long enough. Pardon me. We've let the Jebusites stay in Jerusalem long enough. They conquered all the people around them, but there was this one little group. Ah, oh, just one little. It's small. It's, I mean, it's not that big a deal. They've been here a long time. I mean, let's just live and let live. Let's just keep the peace. And for centuries, they had just said, we'll leave them be. And I said, what's the big deal about that? I'm glad you asked. Everybody hold your place right here just a second. Take a journey with me, would you please? I want you to go back in your Bible to the last thing that Moses wrote way back in the book of Deuteronomy for just a minute. Find Deuteronomy chapter 20. It's the last book of Moses. 
Before he passes off the scene, God repeats some things, reminds his people of some things. Now stay with me. We're going to take a little journey, all right? So stay right with me. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 20 and verse number 17. He's giving them commands for when they finally get in the land, when they finally get to Canaan, when they finally get to the place God has for them. Look at Deuteronomy 20 and verse 17. But thou shalt utterly destroy them, namely the Hittites, And the Amorites, the Canaanites, and the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the what? Huh. Would you mark it in your Bible? And the Jebusites, as the Lord thy God hath commanded thee, watch verse 18, that they teach you not to do after all their abominations, which they have done unto their gods, so should you sin against the Lord your God. God said, if you don't deal with these things, if you don't let God be thorough with you, then the little enemy that you let stay in the Jerusalem of your soul is going to be your downfall. It's not the enemy without, it is the enemy within. And notice, it wasn't a suggestion, it was a command. And for the record, when God commands something, he also gives the power to obey that command. So you can't blame God by saying, well, you didn't give us what we needed. God gives us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Stay with me now. Come over to Joshua chapter 3 just a minute. We're working our way back. Look at Joshua 3, verse number 10. Moses is gone. Joshua speaks to another generation. In Joshua 3, verse 10, And Joshua said, Hereby ye shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you. Look at the list. The Canaanites and the Hittites and the Havites and the Perizzites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the what? You know something I just noticed? In all of these lists, they come last. wonder why they come last. It's almost like there's a, there's a procession. There's a, there's a progress. There is a, there's an advance. And look, the Jebusites, God knew, were the ones in the heart of it. They were the ones dwelling in Jebus where Jerusalem was going to be. They were the last enemy that had to be conquered, the enemy within. And God said, I don't want you to deal with some of them. I want you to deal with all of them. I'm going to tell you our problem. We got enough Christianity for everybody else to think we're okay, but we haven't let the Holy Ghost of God be thorough with us. Notice, in Deuteronomy, it's a command. In Joshua 3, it's a promise. God is going without fail to drive them out. That sounds pretty good, don't you think? But may I just remind you, God's not going to do it unless you do your part. You know what some of you are waiting on? Some of you are waiting on the perfect sermon in the perfect youth conference and the perfect invitation and the perfect prayer and the perfect decision and you're waiting on some lightning bolt from heaven figuratively to smack you to the ground and suddenly, shazam, you're the Christian you're supposed to be. It doesn't work like that. As surely as there was a process, there's a process for you. God is working in all of us, sanctifying us, getting out of us what shouldn't be there, putting in us what should be there, conquering the enemy within. Come over. You're still in Joshua, right? Come over to chapter 15 with me. Look at Joshua chapter 15 and verse number 63. We've moved from a command to a promise to now this. This is where we've come to. 
Lord, help us. This is where we've come to. Look at Joshua 16, verse 63. A long list of all the victories and all the blessings and all the battles. And then you come to verse 63, this footnote of failure. As for the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the children of Judah, Does your Bible say could not drive them out? The children of Judah could. Wait a minute. God said do it. God said he without fail drive them out. And now we're reading this. The children of Judah could not drive them out, but the Jebusites dwell with the children of Judah at Jerusalem unto this day. How is that possible? I'll tell you how. Because when they would not drive them out, at some point, they could not drive them out. Some of you, you've made a conscious choice to hold on to your pet sin because you love it more than Jesus. Stop singing that you love Jesus when you love it more than Jesus. Stop singing, I surrender all when you still hold on and clutch that one thing. And you say, it's not a big thing. Listen to me, friend. There's no little thing when it comes to yieldedness to Jesus Christ. And after a while, that stubborn habit that you thought you mastered masters you. After a while, that little sin that's not so big a deal, it's become the stronghold of your life, the last stronghold, the enemy within, the Jerusalem, the Jebusites in you that you could not drive out because you disobeyed God. And I marked in my Bible, under this day. How long are you going to live that way? I'm talking to you. How many meetings are you going to come to? How many sermons are you going to hear? How many times are you going to say, I'm going to do better, I'm going to do better? No, you're not. Because that's not how you conquer the Jebusites. You can't do better. You're a sinner. Look, here's the dirty secret. You are the enemy. You, your flesh, your sin nature, indwelling sin, which means you can't conquer you by yourself. You know what a stronghold is? A stronghold is a weak area, and the only thing that can conquer the weak area is one that's stronger than that. And I want to tell you, there's only one person stronger than your stronghold, and that is our strong Christ. Only Jesus can conquer that area of your life, and he'll only do it when you obey him. We're almost back. Keep turning. Come to Judges chapter 1. Remember I said they could not because they would not? Here's where that comes from. Look at Judges chapter 1 verse 21. And the children of Benjamin, Judges 1 21, did not drive out the Jebusites that inhabited Jerusalem. But, look at the end of the verse. The Jebusites dwell with the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem. There's that phrase again, unto this day. May I tell you tonight who the Jebusites are in your life? You say, you don't know me, preacher. No, I don't know you. I have no idea who I'm preaching to right now. For the record, your sin's not mine, my sin is not yours, but we all have them. I'm going to tell you who the Jebusites are in every one of our life. The Jebusites are the sins you settle for. And we all have them. The writer of Hebrews called them besetting sins. 
the sin that doth so easily beset me. Would you like to identify your besetting sin? Your besetting sin is whatever you run to when you get stressed out. It's whatever you turn to for a little release and relief when you really are having a hard time. It's, it's where you go when you're hurting on the inside and you really ought to run to Jesus, but you've let something else become your refuge. That's your besetting sin. It's the thing that's taken the place only Jesus should have in your life. The psalmist said this, Keep back thy servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then, then shall I be innocent of the great transgression. Look, look here. There's not a person in this room that wants some great transgression in their life. Nobody wants that big ugly black mark. Nobody wants to blow their life up. Nobody gets up and says, I think I'm just going to ruin my life. Nobody does that intentionally. But I'm going to tell you how you stay away from the great trans transgression. You've got to keep any sin from having dominion over you. And you know how to keep sin from camping in your life and putting down roots? and having dominion over you, keep away from the presumptuous sins. It's the thing you keep saying, well, I know I shouldn't do that, but... We make our excuses, don't we? We say things like, well, I'm not as bad as I used to be. Is that the standard now? Well, I'll tell you one thing. I'm not as bad as she is. You think that's going to fly at the judgment seat? Well, you know, preacher, that's just the way I am. Well, just because that's the way you are doesn't mean that's the way you're supposed to be. People say, well, you know, everybody's got their stuff. Yeah, everybody's got their stuff. It's called sin. You know what we all do? We're all hard on everybody else, and we're easy on us. You ought to flip that thing around and be merciful towards others and hard on yourself. Stop giving yourself a pass for the sin in your life. And we blame everybody. And somebody else is to blame. I want you to know it is time for every one of us to take personal accountability for the Jebusites still living in God's Jerusalem in our life. So go back with me, would you? To 2 Samuel chapter 5. And notice this. Oh, I like it. I like it. Nevertheless, oh dear Lord, let tonight be a nevertheless night. Enough, enough of that sin. Enough of that weak, anemic, nominal, mediocre, run-of-the-mill, ordinary, average kind of Christianity. Enough of that. God wants it all. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, the same as the city of David. He deals with the rebels within in order to conquer, and how does he do it? You know, we preachers, we, we, we can preach in such a way, it's like, yeah, 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 yeah. And then you get done, everybody's like, that's good, but why? I mean, how do you do that now? I mean, we, we preach things like, live for Jesus. Everybody says, amen. How? So let's get real practical. Would you like some help from the Bible tonight? It's not from me. How are you going to conquer this stronghold? How, how are you going to tear down the castle walls? They're big in some of your lives. And all of us have something. How are you going to deal with it? Three things David did. Three things you can do to conquer the enemy within. Number one, notice please in verse 6 and verse 7, you've got to stop listening to the lies. 
For decades they had lied and they said, nobody can run us out. We're just too entrenched. <laughs> you know what your sin's doing right now? It's negotiating with you. If you don't believe me, ask Eve. You can't reason with a liar. Satan is a liar and the father of it. While this preacher is trying to preach truth tonight, the devil's lying to some of you and saying, well, you've tried that before and it didn't work for you. Well, you know, that might work for that preacher up there, but he's nothing like you, so I don't think you'll ever be able to conquer that. Listen to me. Stop listening to the lies of the devil and realize that Christ, who is the truth, is inside of you, and greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Stop listening to the lies. The Jebusites, they taunted, they lied. They said their peace. But there came a moment when there was a man named David who said, I am not listening to that any longer. I've been thinking about this the last few days. Do you know what one of Satan's greatest tools is against sincere Christians? I'm talking about sincere Christians. Despair. He sucks the hope right out of you. And finally, people just, they give up. They come to youth meetings. They, they ride an emotional roller coaster. They get all worked up and excited. They say, I'm really going to do better. And they go home. And when the emotion subsides and the memory starts to fade, suddenly the devil comes back and says, see, that wasn't real as you thought it was. And they start believing the devil's lie. And after a while, they have no hope. I want to tell you tonight, Satan always stomps a man down. Jesus lifts him up. Would you like to know where the victory comes? First John says, this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Jesus said to his disciples in Mark eleven twenty two, 22, have faith in God. Four times in your Bible we read, the just shall live by his faith. Listen to me. It doesn't say the just just gets saved by faith. It says the just shall live by his faith. This is more than a decision. This is a way of life. Stop listening to the liars. One of the greatest things that could grow out of a conference like this is an army of young people go home with increased faith in God. Let me tell you what faith is not. Faith is not, I can do this. Faith is not even, we can do this. Faith is, we can't do anything. But I believe Jesus is able. And so number one, you've got to stop listening to the lies. Number two, would you write it down? You've got to start by striking at the source. I think most of the time we're dealing with fruit sins and not root sins. It's like, it's like going out, my son has a garden, and it's like going out and you've got thorn bushes and you take scissors and you cut all the thorns off and you say, well, that won't hurt anymore. No, no, it's going to grow right back. It's going to be painful. I know it's going to be painful, but son, you've got to pull that thing up by the roots because if you don't, it's going to continue to bring forth bad fruit. You've got to get to the source of the problem. Look, please, what the Bible says in verse 8. And David said on that day, Whosoever getteth up to the gutter and smiteth the Jebusites. This is, this is really interesting. The old ancient city of Jerusalem drew its water from a spring called the Spring of Gihon that was outside the ancient city walls. That's where the Jebusites got their water from. And the word gutter here 
is literally the word for a water shaft. In fact, they tell me that there was a 40-foot shaft that went down to a water tunnel that connected to that spring, and that's what fed the water source for the ancient city of Jerusalem. This is interesting. In the early 1900s, a man by the name of Warren discovered it. And David said, you know what? We not, may not be able to just prance into the city and take it, but I'll tell you what, if we cut off the source, I believe we can conquer. And it was through that gutter, it was through that means that they went in and got the victory over these people. I want you to hear me right now with your heart, young person. Some of you are living in defeat tonight not because you don't think that sin's bad. You know that sin's bad. But here's what you've done. You've given yourself enough margin, enough room. You've made it easy to sin. In the words of Romans, the Bible says, but put you on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Here's what I believe. I believe if you're going to get rid of the sin, then you're going to have to try to deal with the source. Is it a person? Is it this? Is it something in your room at home? Where is it coming in at? Stop, stop dealing with just the public. No, no, let's get private about the thing for a minute. Let's, let's not just deal with the, the externals. Let's get to the heart of the matter where you've got to really do business with God. You said you wanted to be clean. You said you wanted to be right. You said you wanted to tear down the stronghold. It will never happen unless you strike at the source of that sin. The writer of Proverbs says, avoid it. Pass not by it. Turn from it and pass away. No, don't get as close to the edge as you can and see how close you can get without falling off the edge. See how far away from it you can possibly get. Listen, listen to me. What's the source of your sin? And if you're waiting, some of you are waiting on me to go off on some long list and you're waiting to see if I preach on your sin. Hey, bud, I don't have to preach on your sin tonight. The Holy Ghost is already doing that. I can't deal with all your sins tonight, but God is, and you're going to have to deal with it either now or when it gets much bigger. Number one, stop listening to the lies. Number two, start by striking at the source. Cut off the means. Put it to death. By the way, notice this word in verse number eight. This is powerful. He says, go in and kill those that are hated of David's soul. Would you circle the word hated? And let me ask you a question. Do you hate your sin? No, no, do you hate your sin? I can stand up here tonight and preach against all the sins you don't do, and somebody says, that's right, preacher, give it to them. Pastors get up and preach on things going on outside the church house, in the community, and everybody says, that's right, preach against sin. What about your sin? It's easy to hate somebody else's sin. Do you hate your sin? There's only one way to hate your sin. Would you like to know what it is? You've got to see it like Jesus sees it. You know why you still love your sin? Because you're still looking at the pretty side of it. You haven't seen the ugly side of it yet. You want to see how ugly it is? Some say, oh, you're going to tell me where it's going to go and what's going to happen to me? No, no, no. No, it's worse than that. 
Go with me to Calvary. And look at the bloody Son of God hanging on that cross. That's your sin. That's your sin. That's how heinous and awful and ugly it is. It grieves the heart of a loving God who loved us so much he gave his own son for us. Dear God, help me see sin like you see it. Help me hate sin like you hate it so I can flee from sin like you told me to. You want to conquer the sin within? Number one, stop listening to the lies about it. Number two, start by striking at the source. And number three, stay consumed with the glory of God. And I believe this is the ultimate. Can I just tell you, this wasn't about David. This was about David's God. Too much of our Christianity is all about us and not enough about Jesus. I'm just going to tell you, in the end, it's not about any one of us. It is about the Lord Jesus Christ and his rightful place in our lives. He is worthy of all. Notice what the Bible says in verse 7. I'm going to read verse 7 again. When I stop, you say the next word. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of... Now, this is really interesting to me. It's actually not Zion yet, but it's going to be Zion. It, it actually is not really known this way yet, but it's going to be known that way. Look, please. David looked at Jerusalem and said, that doesn't belong to you. That doesn't even belong to me. That belongs to God. Zion is the, the holy ground. It's sacred ground. Oh, I love this. Do you understand that the stronghold in your life becomes holy ground when God steps into that? You know what the word Zion means? You might write this in the margin of your Bible. You know what the word means? It means highest point. May I tell you, Jesus deserves the highest point. He is the preeminent Christ. He is, he is greater than all. God wants your lowest point to become his high point in your life. And I love this. Once it's Zion, the same as the city of David. It is God's rightful place, and it's the place God has given you to wage war with your sin and gain the victory for the glory of our great God. David made the weak place the worship place. Think of this. The one place where they said nobody can conquer us ended up being the place where the temple would be. The very place where the Jebusites strutted their stuff and said our lame people can keep you out would end up being the very place where they would make sacrifice to the great God of heaven because only God is worthy of that. Would you like some help over your sin? Listen to me. Then let every time temptation comes, stop and start worshiping Jesus. Every time you come to a place where you got a choice to make, why don't you stop right then and practice the presence of God and acknowledge the Lord is there? Now, I've learned for me, look, we all have temptations. We all have struggles. I've learned for me, when I'm traveling by myself and I go into a room by myself, one of the best things I can do for my mind is walk into that room and say, Lord, I sure am glad you're here and begin to talk to God and sanctify that place, not with my presence, but with God's presence. Look, only worship can keep you clean and right with God. Living constantly and consciously in his presence. The stronghold becomes his throne room. We've been using this word all week, stronghold. 
What a powerful message today from Corinthians. Our brother brought on the strongholds. Did it ever dawn on you that what has been sin's stronghold and Satan's stronghold and the world's stronghold and the flesh's stronghold in your life could actually become the greatest victory in your Christian life and it could become Jesus' stronghold? Do you think it's possible, young lady? That that area of your life could actually become the area out of which you could minister to so many other people? Hey, young man, did it ever dawn on you that Jesus is so great, he could come into that area of your life and not only forgive you and cleanse you, but he could transform you by his own power and make you an able minister to other people who are struggling with the very same thing? Christ is greater. Say it. Christ is greater. No, no, say it like you mean it. Christ is greater. Tell the person next to you, Christ is greater. Look up here. What did I say? Christ is greater. Greater than what? Yes. All of the above. Years ago, a teenage boy sat across from me. He was struggling with doubts about his salvation. He was weeping. And he said, I've prayed a hundred times and I keep begging God and asking God to save me. And he said, I just don't know what to do. And I said to him, you need to learn one truth. You need to learn that Christ is greater. Greater than your memories. Greater than your prayers. Greater than the strength of your faith. Greater than your emotions. Greater than your doubts. He's greater than everything. And only when you see the greatness of Christ can you see the the ugliness of your sin. Only when you see the greatness of Christ can you see the weakness of your flesh. Only when you see the greatness of Christ can you see the pathway to victory. Only when you see the greatness of Christ can you conquer the enemy within. Some of you are waiting on some youth pastor to help you. They're not going to be the help. Jesus is going to be the help. Some of you are waiting to graduate high school. Think, if I get married, this will get better. If I go to Bible college, this will get better. No, because you're going to pull your Jebusites along with you to every Jerusalem you move into. You need Jesus to come in and take his rightful place in your life. Our only help and our only hope is through the known presence of Jesus Christ. Only Christ can conquer the enemy within. Look at verse 10. And David went on. <laughs> oh, let's just, let's just pray. It's not invitation. Let's just pray. Lord, help these young people go on. This is a good start, but oh God, help us go on. And look at it. He grew great. You go on and grow on. How? The Lord God of hosts was with him. Do you see the presence of God, the glory of God? He kept growing in the Lord. It wasn't just a week of youth conference. It was every day of his life. God was with him. And God was greater than every enemy. I'll show you one last verse, and it's in the New Testament. Don't check out just yet. Go to Acts real quick. One verse about David. Same story, not new sermon. Relax. Look at Acts 13. This is God's New Testament commentary on the Old Testament story, comparing Scripture with Scripture. Here's, here's the spiritual application. Don't miss it. In another man's sermon, we read in Acts 13, verse 22, And when he had removed him, he raised up unto them David to be their king. 
whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart. We, we talk about David being the man after God's own heart. And I've heard all kinds of people try to define and describe what that means. I believe God defines his own terms. The verse doesn't end there. A man after mine own heart. What does that mean, Lord? Which shall fulfill, what's that next word? Not my will. What's it say? All my will. Somebody said all means all, and that's all all means. For decades, they said just leave the Jebusites alone. They'll be all right. Well, you know, they're not stirring up too much trouble. They'll be okay. We, we can overlook it a little longer. I mean, they've been there a long time. I mean, we've kind of gotten used to them. How, how big a deal is it? And David said, no, no, that's not the will of God. God said to Moses in Deuteronomy, drive them out. God said to Joshua, he would without fail drive them out. God said that the Jebusites were the Canaanites and the pagan people, and we weren't supposed to learn from them, and we weren't supposed to give them an inch, and here we've let them stay. We're going to drive them out no matter what it costs us. You want to know the secret to being a young person after God's heart? Don't do some of the will of God. Do all the will of God. Don't do enough to get by or be better than somebody else or better than you used to be. Say, by the grace of God, in the words of Colossians, I want to stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. All the Jebusites out and all of God's will in. C.T. Studd was speaking in a meeting one night. I may be wrong about this. I think it was a moody meeting. He was giving his testimony. C.T. Studd was a household name in England. He was the most famous cricket player in all of England in his day. It'd be like that. I said the name of a certain NBA star, NFL star, and people say, oh, we know who that is. That was C.T. Studd. He had gone to a moody meeting and gotten gloriously saved. He didn't just get saved. He surrendered to be a missionary. He was crazy. I mean, he was radical for the Lord. He was radical. He wrote a little book called The Chocolate Soldier. Everybody ought to read The Chocolate Soldier. C.T. Studd said, we've raised a whole generation of young people who are not real good soldiers of Jesus. They're chocolate soldiers. They look nice and they look sweet, but when the heat gets turned up and the fire comes, they all melt. He went to India and Africa as a missionary. He married a girl named Priscilla who was as crazy about the Lord as he was. <laughs> they tell me that on the day of their wedding, Priscilla came down the aisle in her wedding gown with a banner across her wedding dress that said, United to do battle for Jesus. That's a woman right there, let me tell you. I mean, they were out now for God. They just had the Lord all over them. C.T. Studd giving his testimony. Big youth meeting. When it was done, an older man from the back, not old, but middle-aged, came down the aisle, waited till C.T. Studd was available and shook his hand, and he said to C.T. Studd, you don't know me, sir, but I'm, I'm a minister. I'm, I'm a Christian author. And then he said, I've listened to your testimony tonight, and he said, there's something different about you. He said, son, I said, I think you have something I don't have. Can you tell me what it is? And without hesitation, C.T. Studd looked him straight in the eye and said, have you surrendered everything to Jesus Christ? The man took a step back, put his hands up. He said, of course, I'm a minister. 
Here's a really interesting thing. The man that was talking to C.T. Studd, the preacher that I'm telling you about, is pretty well known now. His name is F.B. Meyer. Anybody ever heard of F.B. Meyer? I recommended a book by him earlier today to the youth workers. F.B. Meyer is one of my favorite people to read after. Here he is looking at a kid who's just really sold out to the Lord, asking him, what is it that you've got that I need? And C.T. Studd has the audacity to say to him, have you surrendered everything to Jesus Christ? And F.B. Meyer later said, I was offended. He didn't recognize me, didn't know who I was, a mature minister. F.B. Meyer said, but I wasn't just offended, I was convicted. He said, I walked alone that night back to my house by the river under conviction. A saved man, a preacher. If Meyer testified, you can read it for yourself, it's an amazing story. He testified and he said, I got to my house and I found the house key and opened the door and went in, closed the door behind me. It was dark. He said, no one was home but me. And he said, suddenly at that moment, the Lord just met me. On some spooky, mystical way, he said, I didn't see a vision. He wasn't literally, physically standing in front of me. He said, but I knew God was there. He said, it was just like, it wasn't like the church meeting. It was just like me and the Lord. And he said, I could sense the Lord saying to me. Remember, he had these keys in his hand. He said, I could sense the Lord saying to me, Meyer, I want the keys to your life. And F.B. Meyer said, I said, of course, Lord. And I handed them to him. And F.B. Meyer said, I watched as the Lord Jesus with nail-pierced hands took the keys of my life and patiently, quietly, standing before me, began to count them. He said when he was finished, he dropped his head. And I heard the Lord say, there's one missing. And Meyer said, I said to the Lord, Lord! It's just a little key. It's just a wet wound in the area of my life. It's not a big deal. I mean, look what I've given you. Look how much I've given you. It's, it's not much, Lord. I'm just keeping that one little area for myself. And he said, I watched as Jesus turned to walk away. And I said, Lord, don't leave me like this. And he said, I heard the Lord say to me, Meyer, if I am not Lord of all, I am not Lord at all. And F.B. Meyer said that night, I took the last lonely key of my life, the one little area that I had kept for F.B. Meyer, and he said, I placed it in the nail-pierced hand of Jesus. And he said, my life has never been the same. And I came on the last night of this meeting to say, time for some of you to stop talking about what a good young person you've been and how much you've done and what you don't do. And it's time for you to take the last lonely key of your life and put it in the nail-pierced hand of Jesus and watch him conquer the enemy within.